Good morning. My name is Yeni, and I'm going to be reading the Bible for us today. Today's reading is taken from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, verses 1 to 16. Please follow along in your Bibles, or on your devices, or on the screen behind me. Ezekiel, chapter 38, verses 1 to 16. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed, and a great horde, with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their sword. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, all with shields and helmets. Also Gomer, with all its troops, and Beth Togarma, from the far north with all its troops, the many nations with you. Get ready, be prepared. You and all the hordes gathered about you, and take command from them. After many days, you will be called to arms. In future years, you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops and the many nations with you will go up, advancing like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme. You will say, I will invite a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living at the center of the land. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tashis and all her villages will say to you, Have you come to plunder? Have you gathered your hordes to loot, to carry off silver and gold? to take away livestock and goods, and to seize much plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. In that day, when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, God, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's do this. Yes, we have to. We're going to do a thing first, so settle in. Now, there's no denying it. You three are getting old, old as dirt. So I think it's time uh, we let you girls in on a little game your mother and I play. It's 
called Worst Case Scenario. No! Dad, now the rules are simple. We all go around and we say worst case scenario, and then our biggest fears as to the worst possible way our lives can go from this move. Now, if you don't want to go, you don't have to. Worst but... case scenario. Randall never gets over himself, and I have to spend the next four years trapped in my room like Rapunzel. Wow. That was good. I'm a fast learner. My turn. Worst case scenario. Tomorrow, when Deja takes the bus to school, she forgets to text me the moment she arrives, and then I'm forced to ground her until she turns 18. Boy, you're gonna let Text me... the moment you get to school, every single day. Yes, sir. All right, worst case scenario. Um, that I project my own stuff onto you girls, making you feel anything less than your wonderful, beautiful, wildly unique selves. Tess. I don't have one. Nothing? Nope. Billy looks good on me. <laughs> Worst case scenario, all of my friends back home forget about me. Wow, babe. Have you been worried about that? Why didn't you say anything sooner? <laughs> I'm just messing with you. <laughs> all right. So, you ready to do this? Ah, last one up the steps is buying cheese steak. Hey, hey, go! G'day everyone. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Pracker. So glad to be with you this morning. Well done on braving the cold and getting out here. Um, that clip is from uh, a TV show called This Is Us. It follows the lives of the Pearson family. Uh, you saw the dad there, Randall. He's one of the original three from the Pearson family crew. And uh, he and his wife, they have this game. They call it Worst Case Scenario. When things are going wrong and when they're stressed out, they play this game. It helps them uh, express their deepest fears rather than suppress them. And there you saw them introduce that game to their children. I wonder, though, for you, do you ever do that? Do you ever sit and think, oh, worst case scenario, this is where I'm headed. These are my deepest fears. See, that's something that's happening in the book of Ezekiel. Today we're looking at Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Yenny just read out a part for us. But it's all about the deepest fears for the Jews. Uh, as a church, this term we've been going through, Ezekiel, it's a Bible book. It's written by a guy named Ezekiel. He was a Jew, but he was not living in the Jewish land because in the year 597 BC, he was taken into exile by the Babylonians along with about 10,000 other Jews. And last week, though, we heard some devastating news. The remaining Jews who had, been le who had left behind, had been behind in, in, in Jerusalem, in the Jewish land, they suffered the same fate as Ezekiel. So 11 years after Ezekiel was taken to exile, the Babylonian army had returned to the Jewish land and they defeated the Jews. They burnt the Jewish capital city, Jerusalem. They burnt it to the ground. And so now virtually all the Jews have been taken to Babylon in exile. And this might seem like worst case scenario for them. But last week we also heard of God's promises to the Jews. This wasn't the end for them. There was hope yet to come. God promised to resettle them in their land and to renew everything for them. And so this week, 
Ezekiel takes us to that future. He imagines the Jews back in the land and he plays a game of worst case scenario. Imagine we're back in our land and things are going well for us. It sounds great. God's promises here are really good. But what if? But what if our worst fears come? What if another nation comes and attacks us like the Babylonians did? So as we sit in and listen to what Ezekiel says to the Jews back then, it forces us to ask that question for ourselves. What's our big what if? What are our fears? And what does God say to us when these fears come to the surface? Right, that's all we're going today. But, but let's start actually just working our way through the passage. So Ezekiel 38 and 39 for today. And right at the start, in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 2, we meet a guy called Gog. And he's from a land, of an, perhaps even a nation called Magog. Now, over the years, many people have tried to figure out exactly who this guy is, who's Gog. But the problem is we can't find any ancient king with this name. We don't know of a people or a land called Magog. So you might be left, well, well what's this all about then? But see, that, that kind of misses the point. Gog isn't meant to be a real person that we should recognize. Instead, God, uh, sorry, Gog represents the fears that the resettled Jews will have. Gog is, is symbolic of an extraordinarily fearsome invader. And he is fearsome too. Like, check out what's said about him. In verse 2, uh, Gog is a chief prince. So you think of all the powerful people in the land, Gog is the most powerful of them. In verse 4, Gog is said to lead a large army. These guys have got the best weapons. There's horsemen uh, with, with their horses that are fully armed. There's a horde of foot soldiers with shields and swords. They're ready for battle. And it's not just Gog and his people either. In verses 5 and 6, Gog is actually leading a vast and scary alliance of nations. There's Persia, Cush, Put, Goma, Bethagorma, five nations. And if you put them roughly on a map where we think they are, they surround Judah, right? It's the idea there's no escape here for the people. They can't turn any direction. And together there's so many of them. In verse 9 it says they cover the ground like a crowd, like a cloud. You see, this is a scary threat. It's like saying, imagine China and Russia and the United States put their differences aside and built a military alliance. Imagine they had all their guns pointing at you. There's only one way that can go, right? It's not a good thing. And then Gog and his army attacks. Verse 10 tells us Gog's actually, he's hatched an evil scheme. And so in verse 8, Ezekiel imagines a future when Gog and this army comes against Judah. They attack a, a peaceful people. It's, it's unprovoked attack. And we see what's motivating Gog to do this in verse 12. It's greed. He comes to loot and plunder. So much so that the trading partners of Gog in verse 13, they get so excited about this prospect because they want to share in this, this loot as well. For all intents and purposes, Gog looks like the Terminator. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger at his best. He's the kind of guy who has the ability to plow through any obstacle that's put in front of him. 
No nation can match his army. No, no, no one can stand against him. In fact, this is the words of, of one commentator. He said, you can easily imagine Ezekiel's Gog saying, hasta la vista, baby, before he blows someone away. See, sometimes reading a commentary can be really interesting, right? And fun. Here we are. God has promised the Jews they're going to return back into their land. It's going to, things are going to go so well for them. But Gog and his army and his alliance, it all represents Ezekiel's worst case. Sorry, it all represents the, the, the Jews' worst case scenario. Their greatest fear. They'd already been devastated by Babylon in the past. But what happens... If that comes again, Gog isn't real. It's a symbolic. It's 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 it, it, it's fearful of what the Jews fear the most. It's symbolic of what the Jews fear the most: a fearsome invader coming to attack and destroy them once more. Here's the thing, though: as you read chapters thirty-eight and thirty-nine, it's 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 very it's abundantly clear. Gog is totally and utterly routed by God. I'm going to just read out now a, a, a larger chunk from Ezekiel 38 and just listen to how devastating it is when Gog is defeated. So this is from Ezekiel 38 verse 18. God speaking, he says, this is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused declares the Sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that time there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground and all the people in the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned. The cliffs will crumble and every wall will fall to the ground. I'll summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I'll execute judgment on them with plague and bloodshed. I'll pour down torrents of rain, hailstones and burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations. See, this isn't God just having a battle with and then defeating Gog. It's, it's a cataclysmic judgment against Gog. In fact, some, some of the language here is supposed to remind us of earlier times in the Bible where God has judged people. So verse 22 talks about torrents of rain, reminding us of the time of Noah when God sent a flood against the earth. Verse 22 talks about hailstones, reminding us of the time in Egypt, at the time of the Exodus, and the plague, one of the plagues that God sent against the Egyptians. It talks about burning sulfur, reminding us of what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. God here utterly routes Gog and his army and their alliance. And so as you read through chapter 39, you start to see some of the effects of this devastating blow to Gog. So in 39, verse 9 and 10, the Jews, they go out after Gog has been defeated and they start to collect the weapons that Gog's army had. And they bring them back and there's stacks of them and so they start using it for firewood. And, and, and so there's so much there that they don't need to look for any firewood for seven years because they're just using the weapons from Gog's army. 
Then in verse 12 to 14, we hear that it takes seven months to bury the dead. That's how many people were in this army that Gog brought. They all died. And and it takes a large, dedicated team seven months to bury them all. But then we find actually that doesn't do the job. After seven months, there's still more in verse 14 to 16. The team goes through the land and have to keep uh, finding remains and, and being buried. And it shows that the, the, the defeat of Gog and his army here, it's, it's comprehensive. It, it's complete. Uh, earlier this year uh, in the summertime, Simon, Simon Andrews and I, we went to see a game of Big Bash. The strikers were playing the Scorchers. And do you remember this, Simo? We got crushed. The strikers, they were humiliated. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't even a competitive game, actually. It, it was over so quickly, right, that we, we, we got through the game uh, we got out of the ground, we walked up the other end of town, we found a place to have some dinner, we sat down and had some dinner, then we got on the bus and got home, and we still got home earlier than if the game had lasted the full length. It was, that's how badly the strikers lost that day. They, 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 they were smashed, but, but that doesn't even compare to how, how massive God defeats the armies of Gog. And did you notice there? There's actually there's no real battle between the Jews and Gog's army. There's this big build-up. You know, Ezekiel tells us about about Gog and his army and their weapons and the alliance and and how about how everyone's coming against the Jews. But but then there's no real battle scene. The Jews don't even have to muster their defenses. It's just that that Gog he lets out one giant. That, that God lets out one giant roar. And it's all over. Gog just goes down like a sack of potatoes. Back when I was younger, in my early 20s, I, I used to get into um, the UFC. Yeah, the UFC. Uh, there's one time I tried to get my dad to watch it with me too. Um, so this big fight coming up between these two guys, um, Cain Velasquez, Junior Dos Santos, not the kind of guys you want to meet in a dark alleyway on a night, right? They, they, these are the two top heavyweight fighters in the world. And there was all this build and this hype to the fight. The two huge guys, they're having their war of words. It's for the heavyweight championship. The first time that a big fight like this has been on, on free TV. So there's thousands of people in the arena there live playing, paying big bucks to see the fight. There's millions of people all around the world tuning in to see this. And they get their big entrances and they come down to the ring. They get in the ring, the crowd's buzzing, the bell rings, it's time to start time. And they kind of just feel each other out a little bit. And then suddenly one guy throws one punch, boom, and it's all over. All this hype and build up and, and the fight barely goes over one minute. It kind of feels like a little bit of a letdown in the end, but, but that's, that's like what's going on here in Ezekiel too. There's this great looming battle. Here comes Gog with the most fearsome army you could imagine. God throws one punch and then it's all over. Gog is knocked out like a devastating chaos, totally routed by God. So if you read through chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel, that's really the story of what's happening. It's a rousing victory scene. And you want to understand why? What's it doing here? And why is it here in Ezekiel for us? What's the purpose of these chapters? What did it mean for an ancient Jew when they read this? It tells them pretty clearly they have nothing to fear. Remember again, the Jews, when they hear this, they're in exile. They're in Babylon, being taken captive. 
But God has promised him, no, 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 I'm going to resettle you into your land. Everything will be renewed. This is a great future to look forward to. And it sounds great. It really does. So what's the fear of the ancient Jew again? What's their worst case scenario? That it happens all over again. They get back to their land, but then along comes some other nation that's bigger and more powerful. And what if they do what the Babylonians did? What if they do worse than what the Babylonians did? But you can see what God is promising here, can't you? Think, it's like God is saying, think of the, the worst army, the worst invader that you could possibly imagine. Gog, leading an alliance of nations all around. A huge attack that the Jews could never survive. And God says, even if that threat comes against you, even then, I'll protect you. I'm your security. Not even that is going to stop my good plans for you, my people. So what have they got to fear? We have fears today too, don't we? You ask me, what are you afraid of? And I'll tell you pretty quickly. Spiders? And if I'm swinging deep water in the ocean, sharks. But even you know, as I say that, deep down, that's not what keeps me awake at night. That's not the kind of stuff that we really deeply fear, is it? I wonder for you, what are those bigger, deeper fears that you have? That you'll fail at what you set out to do in life? That you parent your kids in a way that messes, messes, messes them up? that you'll end up alone in life. That actually, you, you won't find out what you're meant to do with life and, well, what's the point of it all then? That your marriage might be falling apart. That this sickness you're enduring, that it won't actually ever get better. That others judge you and talk about you behind your back that you won't ever get to do what you really want to do in life. That there's something bad on the horizon coming and you don't know what it is. I don't know what your worst fear is. But I think most of us have it. A worst case scenario, something we desperately fear. What's yours? I want to take you now to a part of the New Testament. Um, if you've got a Bible there, flick it open to Romans and find Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, it's written, the Romans is written by uh, the Apostle Paul, written to a church in Rome. And in chapter 8, Paul's been talking about so many of the good things that Jesus brings to those who follow him. So he says in verse 1, there's no condemnation now if you're in Christ. In verse 14, uh, he talks about us being adopted as God's children, treated as his children. And, and in verse 21, it talks about us being headed for glory and so on. Romans 8 is, is, is a chapter that's full of so many of the good things uh, that, we get to, uh, that we get to experience as we follow Jesus. But then towards the end of the chapter, uh, the Apostle Paul starts to talk about our fears as well. So look what he says in verse 
35. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, let me say, if you're a believer, that is a, that, that's a scary thing, isn't it? That you could somehow step outside of God's love for you. Well, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives all sorts of options. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And let's be honest, if, if, if we found ourselves in some of those situations, well, that would be pretty bad, right? If we're in trouble or facing the sword or being persecuted, that kind of feels like worst case scenario to us. And at that point, you kind of think, well, what's Paul going to say? Is he just going to reassure us and say, oh, look, if that happens, it's going to be okay. Just look, those things aren't going to get you. They, they, they really aren't the thing to fear. That's not what he says at all, actually. In fact, in the very next verse, Paul says something interesting. He says, he says um, those things are going to happen to you, actually. So he quotes from Psalm 44 in, in, in verse 36, and he says, as it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It's saying if you're a follower of Jesus, you will experience some of those things. God doesn't promise you a life of ease and comfort that you can sail on through to eternity in. He actually says it's going to be difficult. So does that mean we're just doomed to worst case scenario then? Is it a sign that somehow Jesus doesn't love us anymore? But the answer is emphatic in verse 37. Look at verse 37. It says, no, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we get the reason why in verse 38. Look at verse 38. It says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And friends, if you're a believer and that doesn't make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, then uh, this, is, this is incredible stuff, isn't it? What is going to take God's love away from you? Think about it. What could do that? The answer that God says to you in his word today is nothing. Nothing. What are your deepest fears, friend? What's the thing that most scares you? What's your worst case scenario? You may walk through that in your life. But here is the thing that God says to you. Your security is God. Even amidst those moments when you walk through your worst case scenario, your security is God. He has got you in his love. But how do I know that? I want some kind of proof because, gee, it feels like when I'm walking through those tough times, it feels like God doesn't love me. Look back at Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Uh, he, talking about God, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, 
along with him, graciously give us all things. God has already given you the thing that cost him the most. Why would he stop now? He won't, friends. The guarantee of God's love and security on your life is signed in the blood of Jesus. So when your fears arrive, friends, in those moments of worst-case scenario, know that your ultimate story is not governed by those fears, but by God's love for you. He has promised you an eternal future and nothing will take that away. Nothing will separate you from his love. That's where you find security. Let me pray for us all. Our great God in heaven, we thank you for what we've heard today from your word about your great love and care for your people. In the same way that you promised to give security to, to the returned exiles in Ezekiel, you promise us something even greater. Father, as we walk through our deepest fears, help us never to question your love for us. Help us always be confident of that. Help us to look to Christ crucified, to know our certainty, the certainty of our, our, our future hope and the certainty of the security of your love. Please help us to always know this. We ask in Jesus' name. And we really need to pray about this, Father, because so often our fears seem to speak so loudly to us. So we're asking that your word, that you would be able to speak more loudly to us than even our fears. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.